Welcome to We Sing the Bass Electric, a podcast for bass lovers and music enthusiasts of all genres. Join us as we revisit some of the most iconic recordings from different bassists, past and present, discussing behind-the-scene insight and stories that made up some of the most revered albums of our time, all from a bass player's point of view. Now here's your host, international recording artist, Mr. Christian Day Masonis, a.k.a. Big New York. Celebrating over 40 years making music for the masses, Raven's latest release, Metal City, has blown away fans and critics alike. Today, we speak with the founder, songwriter, and bass virtuoso, John Gallagher. Welcome to We Sing the Bass Electric. I'm happy to be here, Christian. Good to see you, man. Can you believe it? Your debut album was released almost 40 years ago. It blew away so many fans of hard rock and metal. Obviously, the magic is still there. Has the songwriting process remained the same over the years? Well, it's changed slightly. I mean, you've got to understand that we were like maybe six and seven years old when we did that record. (laughs) (laughs) I pick up a guitar and play a riff and go, oh, that sounds good. And we record it. And, you know, I either work on it there and then or come back to it later. And if it's, you know, got something going for it, run it down and see where it goes. And, you know, it's just got to have that spark, that energy, something that makes you want to, you know, bang your head or jump around. Uh, if it's if it's that kind or, or something that's uh, got some drama in it, you know, you got, you got to work with that. So over the years, I mean, you know, technology has uh, been our friend. I remember when the four-track cassette players came out and that was like, wow, that was like a revelation. That would be geez, what, 83, 84, and you had the Fostex, and you, you were able to, you know, put down a track and put down something to complement it and, you know, like play with stuff like that. I must have burned through about three or four of them over the years. <laughs> yes, yes, I remember that process. Yes. Yeah. Um, I've always dug your approach on the bass guitar. You're a big fan of melody and not afraid of incorporating multi-string instruments to achieve your vision, how did that influence come about? Uh, well, I was influenced by a lot of really cool bass players. I grew up at a time where, you know, looking back, it was astounding how many great players there was. Uh, and even right before I'd actually started playing, I mean, these things went into my head. Andy Fraser from Free, what a genius player. So young, but so amazing. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Ronnie Lane from The Faces. Great melodic bass player. Gary Thane, John Wetton, Trevor Boulder, Greg Lake, uh, Chris Squire, Entwistle, you know, all these people. Uh, and we were lucky to see a lot of the bands at our hometown in Newcastle, England, Small Hall. And you'd get to see these people up close and personal you know, rather than nosebleed at a stadium with binoculars, you know. We could actually sit there and go, oh, there's Bob Daisley. What is he doing? How's he doing this? What's he playing through? Oh, this is cool, you know. The multi-string thing, well, I came from Tom Peterson. I'd read about him and thought, oh, I like that, because I was playing octaves to fill out the sound and chords and stuff. 
and that sounded like a brilliant way of pulling that off. And then saw them play the Newcastle Mayfair. And, you know, they had a couple of parts where he was playing high up the neck and playing little riffs. And it was like, oh, you, you could do finger picking on this. This would be great. And there was no 12 strings commercially other than Hamer, but I got a, an Ibanez 8 string and used that on a couple of tracks of our first album. And I traded that in for a Kramer XL8, which I know you have a variety of that yourself there. Uh, and that's one oh, of the yeah. best playing eight strings you can get. And I used that for, geez, 15 years. So that's all over our second album. And it's just a great sound. Uh, sounds like a bulldozer distorted. But if you play clean with a bit of chorus and echo on, it's majestic sounding. And you can play these arpeggios. And, you know, I could take over the role of uh, bass and picked guitar for a couple of quiet songs or quiet parts like Tyrant of the Airways, for example, where we, you know, I'm playing a, a, an arpeggiated figure and my brother soloing on top of it. And it was just like a new sound, a whole different, different approach, you know? Yeah, I'm a big fan of that sound. And I do remember I can relate to what you're telling me because uh, back in, in the day, you know, we had shows that were like $5 to see three bands and, and you would see something like a, 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 a triple bill with uh, Cheap Trick and UFO and Rush as the headliner and right up front. And so you would really learn, I guess, that was groundbreaking. I mean, so you think about Tom Peterson, this is 77 coming out, 76. Um, and then you think about like Greg Lake. I remember seeing Greg Lake and his uh, uh, Scorpion Alembic eight-string, which I thought was the most incredible sound I've ever heard live. And so, yeah, and I, and I can hear that in your influence. I think, I, I really think it's a really cool thing that you bring, um, that you bring to the table, you know. Let's go back to your very first recording, Rock Till You Drop. Tell us about your first big break and what it was like during those early days for the band. Well, we were, uh, we were playing the clubs and pubs in Northeast England and you know pub gigs and then we moved on to the working men's clubs which was uh both of them were really the same thing it was entertain us or die you know uh tough audiences but if they liked you they let you know and you'd have fans for life i still have people that come to those shows will come to see us when we come and play northeast england you know uh so we learned our trade and from, from watching the aforementioned bands uh, at the City Hall and whatever, you'd see, you know, which bands went over well or which didn't and why they didn't go down. And, you know, you would... I mean, I remember seeing Bad Company at the height of their fame, 1976, and I was ready to walk out after two songs. It was dreadful. They didn't care. They just didn't care. It was lame. All the guitar tones were like clean. They were bored. I mean, you closed your eyes, it sounded okay. You know, Paul Rogers is a phenomenal singer, of course, but it was just, nah, this, this, is, this is not what it's about. People would cut their right arm off to be where they were right there and they didn't care. You know, and, and of course that was a, 
you know, 77, 78, 79, you started seeing all these guys in bands who are obviously out, out of the face on drugs. <laughs> that, was, yeah. that was half the problem, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, the, our work ethic has always been kill, 100%, bleed, leave it all on the stage every time, you know. So our first break was really was we were playing a club in Newcastle and the manager of another local band who just put out a single, the Tigers of Pantan, he came up and said, how would you like to do a single for Neat Records? And we were like, let me think about it. Yes. Because, you know, let's do that. You got to understand where we were in Newcastle, it's like being in Nebraska or Iowa compared to yeah. LA or New York. I mean, yeah. you know, you had no chance of putting a record out or anything. So to have that opportunity was unbelievable. And because the Tigers of Pantang single, they were smart. They'd sent it off to the major music publications in London and they actually liked it and promoted it. Same happened with Oz. Oz got played on Radio One, you know, the BBC in England and Ozzy heard it and said, who's this? This is great. I want those guys to open for me. So, you know, like a month after the singles out, we're playing four dates with the blizzard of Oz. We get a gig at the marquee with Iron Maiden. We're playing down in London with Angel Witch. And, you know, it just exponentially took off and just went crazy, you know. You were really at the right place at the right time. I mean, 1980 and 1981 were groundbreaking years for hard rock and metal. And, you know, your first album was released in 81 before Metallica, Anthrax, and Slayer. So um, how comfortable are you being labeled the godfathers of thrash metal? Do you, you feel all right with that statement? What's your feelings about that? Oh, they can call me whatever they want, as long as they pay me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. I got we've, you. Uh, yeah, we, we've, we've definitely got a, a handle on that. We were one of the first bands to come out and, you know, play really energetic and fast and uh, with abandon, put it that way. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of bands took what we were doing and maybe, you know, left the melody and the songwriting behind a little bit and, you know, it morphed into all the way through. But uh, yeah, we we were we were definitely one of the first. I wouldn't say we were the first, but uh, you know, music changes and it gets passed on. From we, we took it all from the the bands we loved, you know, the Judas Priests, the Montrose, the Deep Purple, the Led Zeppelin, blah blah blah. Took all the fast, the energetic parts of that, and made our own blend and went on to sell that all around the world. <laughs> Speaking of, you know, worldwide domination, I mean, I do remember when you came on the scene for the first time here in America, you actually featured in something that we had Friday night videos and we had a, a bunch of video programs. And I do remember the on and on video that came from your um, commercial success here in America with the release of Stay Hard. Uh, were you happy with the album? I mean, were you under any pressure from your new label, Atlantic, to produce a more commercial sound? No, not that album. There was pressure on the second album we did with them, but Stay Hard was done. It was recorded before Atlantic was even really in the mix. It was, well, 90% done. 
there was interest from them and they'd mentioned they would love to hear a redo of Hard Ride. They thought that was a great song. So we redid it, which was a dumb idea because it's not as it's not as good. It's uh, a, a lot tamer, put it that way. But uh, that was the only pressure on that. I mean, it's it's uh, you listen to All For One, the previous album, and then Stay Hard, you know, a lot of the songs could be interchangeable. They could have been on either album. It, it doesn't sound quite as bombastic and as heavy, uh, mainly because we didn't do it all the way through with Michael Wagner. We called him in halfway through to save it. We'd been recording it with us live sound engineer and it wasn't really cutting it so we brought michael in we redid a whole bunch of stuff and you know remixed it but those songs were great great songs uh we cut some new ground the instrumental on there the bottom line is hilarious it's got the horns on it's it's it, it's it was totally different you know it was new uh, and the songs were killer live. We, we had a, a hell of a great time doing that. It was when it came to the next album that the, the heavy stepped in and there was a lot more pressure to lean towards the commercial uh, aspects of things. And it just didn't work because it's not us. You know, you, you've got to be true to yourself. And, you know, we were naive young and stuck in a country where people basically feeding us we were you know two pennies to rub together and we had to step back after that and just say you know what no we're not doing this let's do an ep which was the mad ep and basically get back to what we do best and we've been doing that ever since back at that time if you remember were you really uh, financially struggling? I mean, you seem to, uh, at least from my perspective, I guess with the Stay Hard album, you, I guess you were you were on top of the world from my perspective. But was that a really tough time for you? Were you struggling financially? Were you on a per diem? Then your manager, manager, oh, yeah. the label give you just yeah, just I mean, enough we were, to live on. We were on a per diem, uh, very little money and. We were staying up in upstate New York in a house that was costing us like, what, a hundred bucks a month or something crazy like that, which was ridiculous. Uh, so we didn't really want for anything, but uh, all the money that came in was either going into other people's pockets or going into equipment or going into the stage show. Because, I mean, we were, we were breaking stuff pretty much as quick as we could buy it, you know. Funnily enough, uh, Steve Kaufman, who worked at ESP Guitars at the time, he loved it. And he just kept giving us more guitars to smash. He thought it was great. <laughs> um, These are times that will never come again. The new guy came in and it was like, can you sign this receipt for this guitar? And you, you owe us $500. And me and Mark signed it and looked at each other and went, yeah, I guess we're done here. <laughs> Uh, speaking around that time, you know, uh, one of my uh, favorite compositions is Pray for the Sun. And your finger-picking style of open chords on the eighth string is something that I always found quite alluring. Uh, some equate this sound and style with lead guitar rather than bass. What's your opinion on that? Yeah, that's a, a cool piece. It's a strange altered scale 
with a trailing G on it on, on the eighth string. No, it's it's not lead guitar. It's uh, it's 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 its own instrument on that. It's definitely it's not guitar. It's not bass, but it's a bit of both on that. And that's got some some cool chords and and stuff on it on the on the bridge part of that. That, that really worked out nice. And that was all written on the eighth string, obviously. But uh, you know, the eighth string you can play bass on it. You can do those kind of chordal things. And I have it strung really light, so I can play lead guitar on it too if I want to. <laughs> and I guess part B to that question would be, uh, you know, your technique includes the incorporation of double stops, power chords, tapping, of artificial harmonics, the use of distortion, effects with feedback. Uh, and I do remember seeing you live at the Ritz and I was blown away when you were using that Explorer with the tremolo bar and the control of your feedback with the whammy bar was so cool. It reminded me of Jimi Hendrix. I was really, really impressed. How did you come up with that style? Was that just something that you came about early in your development as a musician? Well, I remember when we got our first guitars, uh, I had a, an Ibanez kind of a jazz copy. It was like a medium scale bass wasn't a bad bass. And my brother had this terrible Telecaster knockoff that had a kind of a brawler tailpiece, whammy bar, kind of like a big speed type of thing. And I would play that and go, dang, and go, the bass guitar should have one of these. This would be good. So I always wanted one. And I finally found a guy at the repair shop at our favorite music store. A new guy came in. I thought, I need a whammy bar for me bass. Could you make one? And he said, yeah, I think we could do that. And we sat down and drew a few ideas. Let's take a block and we'll make a, a plate and take some base bridges and put it on. And yeah, I can do this. Give me a week. Put it together. I gave him the base. Da-da. All set. We kept breaking bars. So we got a screwdriver, chrome vanadium screwdriver, and made a bar that wouldn't break. And I was off to the races. And then I added a bridge pickup on the bass and he accidentally put in an EMG 81 guitar pickup. And I played through, we had a AC30 in the repair shop. And I'm like, oh, this sounds honky and no real low end and real peaky and middly. So I just reached over to the gain and cranked the amp and I just went, I'm like, oh, leave it. <laughs> so I've always had a guitar pickup in the back of that ever since it's changed because EMG 81s don't like being smashed around. They kind of break, unfortunately. But I've, I've got a X2N seven-string guitar pickup in there at the minute. Great. It, it wow. just kicks ass. And it's always, you know, for, for the solo stuff, I always just wanted to go off and basically do all the crazy stuff guitar players do, but do it a little differently, you know. You have articulation. You can bend notes. You can put feeling into what you're doing rather than bump, 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 hitting the notes. And, you know, I've got a big, noisy, loud sound. Uh, but, you know, the, the bass, you can, it's kind of uncharted territory. Even now, there's a lot of cool things you can do. So I'm having fun finding them out. <laughs> and, you know, speaking of distortion, which you use, uh, what pedals do you use live versus in the studio? Are they the same? Well, I'm using this one, 
Live, which is a Boss ME80. Uh, and I've used it in the studio, but the last couple of albums have been, uh, I think Extermination was, we had like four runs. We had a DI into a couple of distortion boxes. I had a guitar amp running. and We just kind of blended it all till it sounded good. Uh, on the new album, Metal City, it was actually a, an altered guitar amp sound on a Kemper. We plugged into a Kemper and that sounds good. A bit more bottom end, a bit more gain. We're set. We got the guitars and bass guitar sound in like two minutes. It was ridiculous. And it sounds great. And then, you know, for little solo parts or whatever, we crank the gain or maybe put a few effects on or what have you. But, uh, you know, I've, I've used just about every effects unit there is and it still sounds like me. So <laughs> that's the important part, I guess. Well, lately, you know, uh, one big thing that I've noticed about you is that you seem to have this huge social media imprint. You've been sharing your riffs and your playing style live on almost a daily basis on Facebook. Uh, what is your daily or regular practice routine? And if so, what do you focus on? Uh, I just play. Uh, this has been good discipline-wise, doing these, what I call the noodle videos, which I just hit 190 days in a row yesterday. Pretty wild. Wow. Uh, wow. Because it's, it's like, okay, uh, I'll, I'll plug in and play something and say, oh, okay, this is cool. Or I'll set up some weird effect. Because uh, there's so many cool effects in here with the the slow gear where it you know like a volume swell and you combine that with whatever else uh, chorus pitch shifting whatever you can do some crazy stuff. Uh, but on on the musical side, uh, I don't know. You you look at Facebook or what whatever, and, and people will mention music or the, there was all these memes for sound of music, right? Mm -hmm. with Julie Andrews and you know, taking the mickey out of somebody. I'm like, oh, I remember Jacko used to play The Hills Are Alive, Spring, <laughs> and stuff. Mm. Yeah. What yes. else is on that? And then there was a skit with the uh, Chim Chimini of uh, Mary Poppins. I thought, ooh, yes. that sounds a bit like a Tori Amos song as well. So I figured out the chords for that. And then Zeppelin, I've done The Rain Song, Ten Years Gone, Tangerine, on bass. Mm. Great. Uh, even Stairway to Heaven, you know, two-handed to get half the notes in and all that. It's a challenge. It's, it's fun. So uh, it, it just, uh, so I'll, I'll play, I'll, I'll work on stuff and stuff will just come up and go, ooh, that's, that's interesting. But you'll often learn from trying to play some of these pieces of music which have got really nothing to do with the bass guitar mm -hmm. so you have to stretch to make it work and then you'll learn new chordal patterns and you know it, it's you never stop learning that, that's what's cool about it you never stop learning and the other cool thing is there's always there's always somebody worse than you but there's always somebody better than you so the important thing is for you to be better tomorrow than you are today and the day before. So that's always been my thing to try and do what I do better than I did it the day before. That is uh, great advice, you know, 
And uh, what I like about you sharing your impromptu Facebook sessions with us is that you'll um, you'll go after maybe a standard, a jazz standard. I remember you playing the shadow of her smile or um, right, Rain, yeah, Moon River. Moon that's River. it. Yes, uh, Philadelphia by Neil Young. Uh, a couple of Tori Amos songs. That all kinds of weird stuff. Stuff that's got a good melody, you know, really. Yeah, yeah, melody is king, man. Let's talk about your latest release. Now, the band has gone through various drummers in its 40-year career. Your latest release, Metal City, has some serious balls-to-the-wall drumming. Tell us when the recording of this album started and whether COVID-19 made it more difficult to complete the album. Well, that's our new drummer, Mr. Mike Heller, who's absolutely phenomenal. He has scary technique. And he's been a real shot in the arm, him coming into the coming into the organization, as they say. Uh, so he joined in 2017 and almost immediately we had all these songs and we said we want to do an album. And he said, give me a couple of tracks and I'll record the drums at my place. And we were like, oh, we are so used to doing it the old school way. And he says, well, give me the tracks. I'll show you what I can do. And we were blown away at what he'd done on these three songs and just said, here's the rest. Go, do, do your thing, go crazy. We can always dial it back or we can always change it. But, you know, and 99.9 .9 of everything he did, we were just blown away and went, awesome. And if he changed it radically, it was in a good way. So point, well, well, okay, we'll alter what we're doing, you know, to make it fit. And, you know, he put in... I mean, there's blast beats on a couple of parts, which I would never have thought of or wanted in a million years, but it works. And that's what it's all about, taking elements and bringing it in, incorporating it and changing it, and you come up with something new, you know? So, you know, he puts that part in right on the bridge on Human Race, where he's going, but we're playing rang, 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 big open chords. It works with a strong melody on top of it. If everyone was going, wah, 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 it wouldn't sound as appealing, you know? And then we went and recorded the bass and the guitar and the vocals with our old friend, Michael Wagner, at his studio in Nashville. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's always fun working with Michael. It's been, geez, it was like 20 years since we'd worked with him previously. Uh, and it was uh, it was a joy. It was so much fun. It was cool. I think the album uh, is a testament to uh, whatever is in the Gallagher bloodline because it's uh, it, it's just it's, it's rare to to see a band hang in there for this long, but then also continually to improve on their sound and their technique. And even though the magic is there, the songwriting principles are still there that makes up the Raven sound. I just think Metal City is probably your best album to ever. I mean, as far as production-wise, as far as songwriting, as far as playing, uh, I'm telling you, man, I'm speechless. I, I would love to say, hey, you know, when I become, when I finally grow up, man, I, I would like to achieve that level of success. That's, that's pretty impressive. That's real success. And I mean, we're, we're very proud of the record. And 
again, for a band that's been around as long as we have, to come up with what I think as well is our best record, uh, it makes a real statement, you know? And, and, and the cool thing is, I mean, we wrote 35, 40 songs for this album. And there's some great songs in between doing that. And now we're still writing. We're always writing. Um, we just know the next one is we're going to have to raise the bar again. And that's what makes it great, you know? There's always that challenge. You've always got to try and one-up yourself. So that that's it's a great place to be, you know? We're, we're very happy with it. Well, before we end... Uh our conversation. I'd like to have a little fun with you. So um, I created this uh, something different because, you know, I've done my research on you besides, uh, you know, being a fan of yours for so many years. I, I want to do something that's not out there in social media. So I created something like uh, the world according to John Gallagher. So I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to present you with uh two different topics uh an a and a b and okay. you choose you choose what you relate to the most okay oh, your okay. preference are you ready so my, fir <laughs> my first one is star wars or star trek <laughs> that's star trek because you you know you can't do sight gags on the radio <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I feel you. I'm a Star Trek baby, too. Um, my next one is Hammer Horror or Universal Monsters? I've got to go Hammer Horror. That's what we used to hide behind the couch watching. Christopher <laughs> Lee. Uh, yes. Peter Cushing. All that good stuff, yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I'm a big Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing fan. I've, as a child, I went to all those movies. I remember seeing... Dracula has risen from the grave with the Valley of Guanji, uh, double header, <laughs> you know? So, what a, yes, what a I, double bill. What a double bill. So, I, I'm with you on that. Okay. Next one is fast food, pizza or tacos? I'm talking to a New York man here. I've got to go pizza. <laughs> oh, thank you. I, I, I appreciate that. I think pizza is like the one food that I personally can eat. Three times a day and I get sick there's a, of so. There's a place in my heart for tacos, but I'll I'll go pizza. There you go. <laughs> okay. Uh how about this question? Flat wound strings or round wound strings? Oh wash your mouth out with soap <laughs> there, boy. Round wound, because they can do they can do it all and flat wound or one trick ponies. Not not my thing. I remember as a kid going and looking at these great bass guitars and they had these horrible flat wound strings on. They were half an inch off the fretboard and they had a mattress jammed under the horrible ash tree cover on the back of the bridge. That's right. And when, if you ask them to play, you, you go, dunk, dunk, dunk. It's like, what is this? Where's the drang? <laughs> so... I know Pete, there's a lot of people swear by them and love them, but uh, I'm not one of them. <laughs> I uh, relate to that also, because I do remember trying to slap, trying to do 
uh, some Stanley clock lines on my Fender Precision that was uh, strung up with flat wound, labella flat wounds. And boy, did that sound horrible. So yes. Uh, yeah. So I, if, I you wind, you. if you wind the tone off, it's very dark, it's very defined. And I guess it works, but with a tone up to try and do anything, there's always this sticky little click. Which a clack and it's a clack. You listen yes. to all the, the late 60s where the, the bass guitar is really loud. And you hear this mm. clink, 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 clink. It's a, a sticky click, I call it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, here's another one. Precision or Thunderbird? Oh, it's a toughen. It's a toughen. I, I grew up on Precision. I got to go Thunderbird, but because uh, I'm I'm rocking. I'm rocking Thunderbirds right now, so we'll go Thunderbirds. Even though my Explorer is basically a precision when I'm playing it normally, it's got a split coil on it. It just sounds like the best precision you ever heard. <laughs> okay, I got you. Uh, what about festivals versus arena? The cool thing about festivals is that uh, it's, usually, it's a level playing field. You know, there's a stage and there's an audience. And 90% of the bands are there. There's no lights because it's usually during the day. So with a level playing field, that's, uh, you know, a red rag to a bull for us. We can go out there and kill. We can go do our thing. Absolutely. And it's just like, yeah, I've got this, you know, I've got the same tools you have, but I, I, this is what we did with it. You know, uh, an arena, uh, if you're headlining, it's nice. Arena gigs, especially, are just so easy when you're playing at that level. If you're opening, uh, you know, union crew. I mean, even the crew don't do anything. It's all just brought in, set up, and you walk on and play. Uh, so I'll go with festivals because uh, it's always fun to play to a brand new audience. And most of them may not even know who you are. But... Uh, You've got the opportunity there to uh, to break some heads and get new converts. You know that's interesting. I would always th I would think that arena would be a, a better choice personally, only because when you're dealing with a festival, you don't really have time to do a sound check. So a line check, you know, couple of minutes, it's all working, off and running. And what a three piece. I mean, if you can't mix a three piece, come on. Yeah. It's it, you know it, it within. 10 seconds, you should be able to have it where it's sitting just right. Um, anything, if it sounds bad after that, it's sabotage. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I got two more for you, all right? British Steel or Back in Black? We've taken too much for granted! <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yes, I, yes. I mean, I love Brian. Brian's from my hometown. I love ACDC. But uh, British Steel was the one for me back then, definitely. Yeah, I remember playing every single song, side A and side B, over and over again. I loved every song on the album. And what I really dug is the fact that Ian Hill had a spotlight on the Rage. I mean, I thought that was... First of all, you know, you don't think of Judas Priest with having Ian Hill doing anything bass-related except that song, and I believe he had a, an eight-string intro um, on Defenders of the Faith. I forgot the name of that song. Love Bites. Uh, 
Love bites, yes. Yeah. You know, but he really down on the, the, he had a cool eight string double neck. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. yeah. But Ian plays some great stuff on uh Sagwings of Destiny and occasionally on Sin After Sin. But uh by the time he got a British deal, yeah, that was the what the one song. And it's like priests are playing reggae and they make it work. And it's that evil reggae that I love. Yes. Do you remember Roxy Music? Yes, yes, I do. Uh, the Bogus Man. They had a 10-minute song called The Bogus Man. That was the evilest reggae song. It was about like somebody chasing you down the street at night to kill you. And it's down, da, 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 da. Weird. So that's almost that kind of feel. It's very cool. <laughs> wow, that's a good reference. Okay, my last one to you, and probably the most important one. Stay hard or Metal City. Well, we gotta go with the Metal City. Metal City's the 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 real deal. And it's uh, you know, everyone's gonna say that. It's our new album, it's the best thing we've ever done. Don't take <laughs> it from me, go and listen to it, and then tell yes. me about it afterwards. <laughs> Well, you know what? Uh, do you remember that show that Eddie Trunk was hosting, uh, that metal show? I remember yeah. that he had he had Peter Chris on one time. And what blew me away about that episode was that he asked Peter to put the Kiss albums in order. So if you were to put your Raven albums in order, even though there are a lot of them, I guess just, just tell me, what would your, your top four Raven albums be? According to John Gallagher, what would be your favorites? Oh, off the top of my head, it would be Metal City, All for One, Wiped Out, Rock Until You Drop. You know, some variant of that, you know? Okay. I'm glad you mentioned Rock Until uh, You Drop because I think that the magic that was dis displayed on that album, even though some people can criticize maybe some of the audio on it um, or the mix on it, I still think the playing and the rawness of that album is like pure gold. It's pure magic, you know? Well, that's that's why those records are special. Uh, you know, All For One's got slightly better production values because we actually spent money on it. Uh, but uh, Rock Until You Drop and Wiped Out were done on a shoestring budget. But the songs are great. The playing's great. The attitude and the feel is great. And that, you know, that's more important. There's so many records that have got wonderful sounds and audio and it's in one ear and straight out the other because there's no substance to it whatsoever, you know? Well, let me tell you, I had a great time speaking with you today. Uh, I found out a couple of things about you I didn't know, even though there's so much <laughs> about John Gallagher on the internet. I mean, Google you and oh my God, you're on so many different platforms, but I feel like I captured something unique with you today. I hope you enjoyed spending your afternoon with me and thank you so much for uh, supporting my brand new podcast, We Sing the Bass Electric. Have a great day, ah, John. Absolutely. Thank you, Christian. Cheers, man. If you enjoyed this educational music program, please subscribe to We Sing the Bass Electric on your favorite podcast platform. We would love your feedback. Email us at wesingthebasselectric at gmail.com. For bonus material and a chance to win merchandise, such as autographed CDs and more, subscribe to our YouTube channel and join our mailing list at 
we sing the bassselectric.com. As always, thank you for your support. And please buy music from these spotlighted artists. It makes a difference.